Amen. Amen. How are you guys doing tonight? Hopefully you're doing well. If you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians, we're going to be in chapter 3 tonight. Philippians chapter 3. kind of looking at this uh, a while back and kind of going through the book of Philippians and every chapter I kind of came up with a little thing about each chapter. Chapter one I I looked at and I said it was a right thinking. Chapter two was a right heart. Chapter three was a right confidence and chapter four was a right contentment. But tonight we're going to be looking again at Philippians chapter three and really a right confidence, and the confidence that I believe Paul wants us to understand and to know uh, where is our confidence and what is our confidence in. Let's go before the Lord again in a word of prayer. Again, Father, we do thank you. Thank you for your love and your grace. I thank you for your word, God, that, that speaks and ministers to our heart. And as we open your word tonight, God, again, I believe there are things that you want to speak and minister to our hearts. So give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see you in and through all of these things. And Lord, maybe tonight as we're sitting here, maybe we're in that place where we're struggling in our confidence. Our confidence is in other things. Our confidence is in works. Our confidence is in in, in what we have done or what we believe we can do. And um, Lord, I believe your word would want to speak to our hearts and correct us in those things. Encourage us. And that our confidence needs to be, must be in you and in you alone. So be with us, speak and minister, lead and guide. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people agree by saying, amen. Amen. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, it says this. It says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For to me to write the same thing to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. And again, I just love this because on almost every verse, I kind of put kind of a confidence. Uh, and in this verse, it's, it's really what I believe Paul is wanting to communicate is that we understand that there is a confidence that God would want us to have in, in being a part of the family. When Paul says, finally, my brethren, the word for brethren there in the Greek, it's alphadeos, which has part of the meaning in a sense from the womb. So when Paul calls them the brethren, when he looks at us and he calls us the brethren, he is, he is saying that we are part of the family. We are from the same womb, that we have, in a sense, been born again by the Spirit of God. Now, again, church, understand something. If we, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus... If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, Paul tells us in Romans 10 that we are saved. We have been born, in a sense, from the womb of the Spirit into the family of God. We're not on the outside looking in, hoping that someday we might be able to be a part of it, um, but we are a part of God's family. You know, have you ever been somewhere or gone on to someone's house and the whole family's sitting around, you kind of walk in and you, you just feel like, man, I feel like I'm an outsider. I feel like I don't belong. And yet sometimes that's exactly what happens with us 
in a sense of in our relationship with God. We just kind of feel like we're, we're outside, we're, we're, we're on, uh, on the distance in a sense. You know, I have um, two brothers and I have six sisters. I'm one of nine kids. But let's say one of my six sisters came to me, my biological sisters, and, and they said, you know, Pat, I, I just feel like I don't belong in this family. I feel like I don't fit. I feel like I was never a part. And again, I'd look at them and say, hey, it's not about what you're feeling. It's about we have been born in a sense from the same womb. You are part of the family, whether you feel like it or not. And yet I believe what Paul would be saying to each and every one of us is that, hey, we're a part of the family. We're a part of the family of God. Don't have that mindset or don't let the enemy rip you off, making you believe that you're on the outside. We're a part of the, the brothers. We come in and because we're part of the family, then people, we can rejoice in the Lord. We can rejoice in the Lord. And again, throughout this book, we see that Paul, as he's writing this book, speaks often about the joy of the Lord and, and rejoicing in him. And yet, if you look at Paul in his circumstances, as he's penning this book of Philippians, he's in a jail He's chained to a, a, Roman, a Roman guard, and as he's there in that circumstance, he's writing about, hey, people, we can rejoice in the Lord. Again, for Paul, his, uh, his joy was not based upon his circumstance. And in the same way for us, man, our joy should not be based upon our circumstance, but our joy should be based upon Jesus Christ and who he is and what he has done for us. And because of what he's done for us, we can say, man, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, we can say rejoice. For to me, to write to you is not tedious, uh, but for you, it is safe. And again, I quote this scripture often. I love when Peter tells us in Second Peter, he says, for this reason... I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I'm in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you. And here Paul is kind of saying the th- same things. Hey, I want to stir you up. I want to remind you of simple truths, though maybe you're practicing them. Maybe you're walking in them. But I just want to remind you of these things that God has done. And this is not tedious. And I was kind of cracking up when I read the word tedious or looked it up in the dictionary. It said wordy so as to cause weariness or boredom as like a speaker <laughs> or a writer in a sense. Oh, perfect tonight, it's not going to be wearisome. Perfectly tonight, it's not going to be boring to you because, again, I believe it's the Word of God and the Word of God, is, it, it speaks and it's alive and it's, it's powerful. And yet Paul says these things are safe to remind us often of these things. But verse 2, he goes on to say, Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware uh, of... The, the, the mutation. And again, this, this here, uh, one of the other versions says this. It says, stay clear of barking dogs, those religious busybodies, all bark and no bite. Their interest in only is in appearance. 
They are knife-happy circumcisers, I call them. In a sense, again, Paul had went into this, this area. He went into Philippi. He was sharing the word there. Then when he left and went on, the, these Judaizers came in, and they were basically, no, 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 if you really want to be saved, if you really want to be in a right-standing relationship with God, it's about keeping the law, it's about being circumcised. And they were trying to get them, and it was all about the external things. And again, they were trying to bring these people under bondage, And Paul is saying, hey, you know what? Don't go there. Don't go there. Don't allow for that because don't make that your confidence. The confidence needs to be not in what we've done, but the confidence needs to be in what Jesus Christ done. For in verse 3, he goes on to say, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. And again, Paul's confidence was in the spirit. It was not in the flesh. Remember Jesus there in John chapter 4. He's there with this woman at the well. And he tells her, he says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father, which I find just radically fascinating because for a good Jew, the only place you could really truly go offer sacrifice for your sin was at the temple there in Jerusalem. And yet Jesus is telling her, hey, there's an hour that's coming when you're not, it's not about the place in which you worship. He goes on to say the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must, must worship him in spirit and in truth. Paul's confidence was not in the spirit. Was Paul's confidence was in the spiritual. It was not in the physical. It was in the spirit. It was not in the flesh. And then he goes on to describe what that might look like if we have confidence in the flesh. Though I also, verse 4, may have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. Blameless. Paul's saying, hey, if anyone can um, have confidence in the flesh, confidence in their pedigree, confidence in letters after their name, hey, uh, look at me. I have all of this stuff that if I really wanted to boast and if I really wanted to have confidence in, I could do that. And yet, you know what? I find for ourselves sometimes that that's what happens with us. We, we, have, we have confidence and we put it in, you know, what we've done or what we've accomplished or what school we went to or, you know, letters after my name, you know, or, you know, hey, I, I went to USC and I kind of looked down on other people and stuff. And you know, I really didn't mean that in a sense. But, you know, I just meant sometimes we, we have confidence in, in letters rather than in Jesus Christ and stuff. I'm just playing. Anyways, but sometimes we, two by likes that, huh? Two by. We, we have confidence in other things other than what God is really saying. You know what? These, these, things, these things really, in a sense, they don't mean anything. And yet we can have a pedigree. We can have letters after the name. And I'm not saying that having those things is a bad thing. 
You know, you know, 10 years ago, we're coming up on the anniversary of Katrina, and I took my younger daughter, Kelly, and I took her to Katrina, and as she went, she was just starting her first year of college, and as she went down there, and I, I flew in like the week of, and I went into Texas, and we grabbed, you know, some gas and some chainsaws and some generators, and then we drove in, and we drove down to, we were actually in Mississippi there. And yet, as we were there ministering and, and doing all this work, my daughter, she comes back and says, Dad, I want to go be a nurse, and I want to go be a traveling nurse. And again, she went to school, and she got the little letters after her name. That, that's not a bad thing, but if our confidence is in those things, if my confidence is in, hey, I'm a pastor, and so that means I'm right with God, or I'm an usher, or I'm a greeter, or I'm on staff at Calvary Chapel South Bay, that makes me right with God? Paul says, that's the wrong kind of confidence. Because our confidence needs to be in Jesus Christ and who he is and what he has done. In fact, Paul goes on to say there in verse 7, he says, But what things were gained to me, these I counted but loss. Paul says, I can lose those things of the flesh. And I like this because Paul's confidence, it's okay to lose things. And he says, those things of the flesh, it's okay if I lose those things. You know, again, all that man would look at and strive to attain or think that this is what I need to be fulfilled, Paul says, I counted for loss for Christ. And yet for each one of us, sometimes we, we look at things to fulfill us. We look at things in the world and we believe that these are things that are going to make me happy. If I only, you know, I remember back in my BC days, if I only had enough drugs, I could be happy, you know, and then I got saved and stuff. And then it was kind of like, if I only got married, you know, then I could be happy. Or if I only had kids, then I could be happy. And, and you know, we kind of go through these things of thinking that these external things are what's going to make us happy or what's going to satisfy us. And Paul would say, you know what? It isn't in any of those things. Paul was okay with saying, you know what? These things that some people would look at as great gain, he says, I count but loss because it was something greater, something greater that is out there. Moving on to verse 8. Indeed, yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. In fact, I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. And Paul's confidence was in the knowledge of Christ Jesus. Confidence in pedigree or confidence in letters after the name or confidence in knowing Jesus. Confidence in what I've accomplished or confidence in what Jesus Christ have accomplished. And yet when you put these two together, there is no comparison at all. In fact, Paul is going to go on to say, hey, you know what? I've suffered the loss of all things. I really basically have nothing. You know, and I was reading that and I was thinking, man, Lord, I can't say that. There's lots that I have. And yet Paul's saying, you know what? I got nothing. And yes, I'm content because I'm content in who has me. I'm content in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, I count all of that stuff that some people would say, hey, this this is what life is all about. I look at that as rubbish. I look at that as trash compared to what I get, compared to what I gain in Christ Jesus. Verse 9, it says, And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Paul's confidence was a confidence of faith. Faith, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. His faith was not, again, in in his works or his ability. His faith was in Jesus Christ. 
He was found in him, not in works. It was through faith. Again, church, the Bible says it's not by works of righteousness that we have done, but it's according to his mercy that he has saved us. And Paul's confidence was in the righteousness which is from God by faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 10, he says, he goes on, he says, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. And as I was reading this, it was, it was almost like Paul had a confidence in, almost in death because death was not the final thing. Death was just a, a moving on. Death is just a, a moving forward. You know, we were just doing this construction outreach back in, in Bangor, Maine, and Pastor Ken uh, Graves, he was the guy that was here kind of, sounds like Thor, you know, Ken, you know, he's, he's just this big mountain man guy, and he was talking about uh, Christians, you know, and death, and, and how so many Christians, you know, they want to die in their sleep, and he goes, man, that is so boring, man, who wants to die in their sleep? He goes, I want to be eaten by a shark or something, and I'm thinking, you know, Ken, I'm not sure about that, eaten by a shark. He's, that's a little, a little over the top there, but... You know, I was just, in fact, I just got a phone call about an hour ago from uh, my old assistant pastor when I was pastoring up in Washington, and, and his father-in-law, who used to, uh, his uh, father-in-law, who was, he used to attend our church, uh, uh, Bob uh, Taylor, and he was just an amazing guy, and so ministered to me and my wife and helping our family out and stuff, but he said, he said, hey, Pat, I need to let you know that he passed away, and I go, Oh, man, I'm so sorry to hear that. And then he started telling me, yeah, yesterday morning he got up, he went to the prayer meeting at church, came back, and then he was helping somebody uh, throughout the day, and then he went down to the beach like he normally does in the afternoon to sit and pray. And as he was there on the beach praying, he passed away. And actually I went, Andrew, you know what, I don't mean to sound weird or anything, but that is cool. Man, that is cool to be sitting there praying, and then all of a sudden the Lord take you home. Now, that's how I want to die. I don't know, if, you know. But anyways, Paul's confidence, he, you know, and again, for us as believers, again, not that we're, we're looking or, or looking to that, but again, for us, we shouldn't fear. Paul didn't fear death. In fact, again, he looked at it as what it was, that it we're just, it's just something that we can kind of pass through. But he says that I may know him. And again, the know here, it's the Greek word gnosko, which it means to experience. It's an experiential knowledge. Now, again, I was sitting and talking to Alex about the Mexico trip. How many of you guys went to Mexico here? They had a lot, a lot of group. Amen. And he was talking to me about it and telling me about it and stuff, of, about the bathrooms and the showers and, you know, kind of how. And yet, as he's sharing that with me, I can, in a sense, have a knowledge about what they did in Mexico. But I did not experience the bathrooms, the showers, and those things. I do not have the gnosko. That's the experiential knowledge. I could sit and share with you guys about the things God did back in Bangor, Maine, or over in Samoa, and you could have an understanding about it, but you don't have a gnosko, an experiential knowledge about it. But yet Paul, his whole thrust was that we, each and every one of us, brothers, sisters, would have an experiential knowledge of Jesus Christ, that there would be an intimacy between him. It's like, I could tell you about my, my wife and how incredible she is and how wonderful she is and, and all of this. But see, I have this intimate, uh, intimacy knowledge about her. You don't. And yet you're kind of on the outside. 
But God says he wants to have an intimate relationship with each and every one of us. And Paul says that is, we should know him experientially, that we know him. In fact, I love it because John says in 1 John, he says, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, he says, our hands have handled concerning the word of life. In fact, when he's talking about Jesus Christ, when he's talking about it, he says, hey, we handled him, we touched him, we saw him. And that's the experiential knowledge that God wants us to have of his son. But not only to know him, but the power of his resurrection. Again, that word power is due to miss. It's where we get our word dynamite, in a sense, to experience the dynamite. Or the power that raised Jesus from the dead. Again, Paul's looking way beyond death. He's looking at him being raised from the dead. And the fellowship of his suffering. Again, the fellowship. It's that Greek word koinonia, partnership, intercourse, communion. Of his suffering, uh, hardship, pain, affliction. And yet what Paul is saying is, I want to be a part of what Jesus did for me. And if Jesus endured hardship, pain, affliction... I don't want to look at those things as some strange thing has happened to me, as Peter would say, but that we would rejoice that that we are partakers of his suffering. And yet being conformed to his death, conformed to, to share in the likeness, to take on the same form. Yes, Jesus died, but the power of God raised him from the dead. And again, Paul's saying, we want the same. And Paul's saying, I want that to attain to the resurrection, to arrive at. Again, Paul's confidence in death was that death was not final, but death was uh, just a, a, a place where he's moving on, that he would be raised again. He would arrive at the resurrection. Paul didn't fear it, but saw it as a moving forward. And that was his hope, to be with Jesus Christ. Verse 12 goes on to say, not that I've already attained or am already perfect, but I press on that I may lay hold for that which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. And I just absolutely love this verse. And and Paul's confidence, again, this one here, it's a confidence in imperfection. I've not attained. I am not perfect, but I lay hold. I'm pressing on. You know, a, a while back I was doing a little study for the marriage ministry leadership and I was talking about how when David was fleeing for his life from Saul and he ends up in this cave of Dolan and, and there in his cave where he hung out for maybe some 10 years, uh, the Bible says that everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented gathered to him and he became captain over them. Another version says all that were down on their luck came around, losers, vagrants, misfits of all sorts, and David became their leaders. Another version says, all the people in distress, debt, embittered, began gathering around him, and he became their leader. And again, people, as I was thinking about that, this thing we call Christianity, this thing we, 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 we need to understand that God is not looking for perfection. In fact, the, the, the word here is, is complete. It's not sinless. It's the same word that Jesus used here in Matthew 5 when he said, Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. The word is not sinless. It's, it's complete. And yet God takes this group of people, distressed, in debt, discontent, down in their luck, losers, vagrants, misfits, of all sorts, embittered. God took this group of all sorts And again, they're not the type of people that you would be picking to be on your team or if you wanted to change the world. But God, 
God took these groups of people and these misfits to bring about his purpose and his plan. And he used them to bring about his kingdom. He used them to establish the nation. And yet Paul says, you know what? I've not attained. I'm not perfect. Again, God is not looking for perfection. And yet when we look at these men and women that the Lord chose, these people that had all kinds of issues within their hearts, all kinds of issues within their life, something that I found within my own life is that God can take me with all my issues, with all my problems, with all my shortcomings, with all my failings. God uses my frailty, my insecurity, my weaknesses, my fears. God can take them and use them for his glory. You know, I have found within my life, God will even use my pride and arrogance to show me, to manifest how, how, how sinful I still am, to cause me to cry out for God and that I need God so desperately within my life. And yet again, within Paul's life, he was desperate for God. Uh, He never stopped moving forward. He was desperate. He wanted to see God move and work. And Paul pressed on. Paul was reaching to grab hold, and I love this, of one who had already grabbed hold of him. But he was moving forward to grab hold. You know, another note uh, that I liked about uh, David and the story of him and being in the cave of Adullam. You know, David was promised. He was given a promise and promised a kingdom. Even by everyone, even Saul. Remember, Saul looked at him and said, I know that God has raised you up to be king. But yet he finds himself in a cave. Though he was promised a kingdom, he finds himself in a cave. And yet what I like about that was it was in that cave that God began to shape and to form this band of misfits. And God used them and shaped them into the men and women of God that he could use out there uh, to to change, uh, in a sense, the lives of other people. And yet what I find sometimes with ourselves, you know, we've been given promises. We've been given promise of a kingdom. And yet we've been given the promise of the kingdom of God. And sometimes we find ourselves in the, the cave of this world, the cave of Adullam of this world. And yet it's in that cave that God wants to transform, shape, and mold our hearts and our lives. That he might use us in an even greater Way He might use us and in a greater way. And yet for us, it's a matter of are we willing to allow God to use us, to do that work, to mold us and to shape us. And yet be like Paul and never stop pressing on. Never stop trying to lay hold of him who already has us. Again, Paul's confidence is not in what he achieved or that he was perfect or complete, but his confidence was in Jesus Christ. Verse 13, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forward to those things which are ahead. He says, though I have not apprehended, uh, one thing I do, one thing I do. Paul's confidence was in doing this thing, doing this one thing. You know, again, you've heard this here before. This phrase, one thing, comes up many times in the scripture. David said in Psalms uh, 27, One thing have I desired of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. What is it that you desire? David said, one thing I desire, and that is to be in the house of God. You know, Jesus speaking to Mary and Martha, you know, when, when they're in Luke 10. And, and Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. But one thing is needed, 
And Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. Mary chose to sit at the feet of Jesus rather than be busy about lots of things. Jesus said to the rich young ruler uh, there, one thing you lack, go and sell, go your way, sell whatever you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven, and come take up your cross and follow me. And well, I like that because for myself, oftentimes when I feel like something's lacking within my life, you know what? I want to go to the cross, and I want to take up my cross, and I want to follow Jesus. If you feel like there's something lacking within your life. There in John chapter 9, it's, it's the story when Jesus heals the blind guy and then the Pharisees come and they're trying to get him to tell him that Jesus is a, a sinner. And they said, give glory to God. We know this man's a sinner. And yet the guy looked at the Pharisees and he answered. He said, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. And I just love that. It's keeping the main thing the main thing. Though we were blind, now we see. And yet here in Philippians 3, Paul says, Brethren, I don't count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, I forget those things which are behind, and I'm reaching forward to those things which are ahead. He says, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. One thing I do, I forget the garbage of the past and I look forward and I'm moving forward. You know, oftentimes when I'm doing marital counseling and stuff and there's people and there's things that have happened in people's lives and they just feel like I can't move forward, I can't move forward. And I'll always take them to the story of Joseph. Joseph was the 11th son of Jacob and he was kind of like the spoiled child. He was kind of like the favored child. You know, years ago when I was on staff here, uh, back in the late 80s and, and 90s, uh, all the, everyone used to say, well, Pat, you're, you're, you're Pastor Steve's pet. You're the, you're the teacher's pet. You know, you're the favorite in a sense. Yeah, even at my own house, again, I'm one of nine kids, and they all say, well, Pat, you're mom's favorite because when we come there, she always has the food you like in the house, even though you're grown and gone and stuff. But, but again, okay, so I'm the favorite in a sense, but... Joseph, in a sense, was treated that way. I, I, I guess I can relate a little bit, maybe, you know, but he was treated that way. He was kind of the favorite there. And yet, you know, Jacob sends him down to his brothers. He goes down to his brothers. And as he's going down there, they see him. They're jealous. They're mad. They, they want to kill him. And so they grab him and they take him. They take his coat off him. They, you know, they drug it on the ground and they take an animal and they kill it and they put it on there. They send it back to his dad, said he's dead. They throw him in a pit. They're going to kill him the next day. And then they decide, hey, let's sell him into Egypt. He gets sold into Egypt and he goes down to Egypt and there Potiphar buys him. And there as he's there in Potiphar's house, he's trying to honor God with his life. And, and yet he moves up. Yet Potiphar's wife, you know, starts casting eyes on him and wants, you know, wants him and wants him to sleep with her so much so that she goes and she rips his clothes off and yet he flees naked and then she's so mad and embarrassed she cries rape and then he gets thrown in prison and then there is in prison again he's trying to do all the right things he's trying to honor God with his life and he gets raised up there in prison and then the butler and the baker of Pharaoh get thrown in prison they both have dreams Joseph interprets their dreams. The butler would die, or excuse me, the baker would die three days later. The butler would get reinstated. And yet Joseph said, hey, when you get reinstated, remember me, please. He gets reinstated, and another two years go by, uh, and Joseph's still there in prison. And yet what happens, Pharaoh, you guys know the story. Pharaoh has the dream. 
uh, in the dream, you know, the, the butler remembers, hey, there's this guy in prison, and he interprets dreams. So they go, they pull Joseph out, and Joseph interprets the dream. Joseph ends up as number two in command of all of Egypt. Pharaoh gives him the daughter of the priest of On as his wife. And then Joseph begins having kids. Now, when you look at Joseph, in a sense, he's kind of like a type of Christ in the Scripture because there's really nothing bad that's said about him. But I love the fact that when Joseph, you know, he gets married and he begins having children and he starts naming his children. His first child, he names Manasseh. People, do you know what Manasseh means? It means God has made me forget. And when I first learned that, I was like, wow, that's amazing. Because, you know, you think, okay, Joseph, he didn't have any struggles or any problems. But if he's going to name his kid, man, God, you got to help me forget. You know, it's like, hey, he was struggling with that. And yet so oftentimes we have all this stuff of the past and we're, we're married to the stuff of the past and it's, it's divorcing us from moving on into the future of what God wants to do in our hearts and lives. And we get stuck back there. And yet Joseph would say, hey, you know what? God has made me forget. And then he has his next son and his next son's name is Ephraim. And Ephraim's name means God has made me fruitful in the land of affliction. Even in the midst of my affliction, God can make me fruitful. People, when Paul says here, hey, let's forget those things which are behind and let's move forward. He's kind of like trying to say, hey, just like Elsa saying, let it go, let it go. You know, shut the door, slam the door, let it go. For those of you who like Disney, anyways, my granddaughters love it. Anyways, let it go. It's the past. It's in the past. And move on because God wants to do a work in our hearts and lives. And yet so often I've said people just say, Pat, I just can't let it go. I can't let it go. It's like, no, 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 you don't want to let it go. Because even Joseph would say, God can help you to forget. God can help you to be fruitful, even in the midst of something that's not, that, that, that's, that's not good. And yet God is the one who can help you move forward. So one thing I do, forget those things which are behind. I'm reaching forward to the prize, to the prize. Verse 14, he goes on to say, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. I press towards the goal of the mark for the prize that the award is given for the upward call. The the Lord is wanting us to look up, to look to him, to lift our eyes. And yet I love this because Paul's saying, hey, the prize is Jesus. He is the gift of God. He is the free gift of God to anyone who will receive. But again, if someone offers a gift, we have to receive it and we have to receive Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. But Paul is saying, hey, people, he's the gift. He's the prize. It's him. Look up. Look to him. Verse 15, therefore, let us as many as are mature have this mind. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal this to you. And I like this. Kind of for me, it's like, you know what? Confidence that God will reveal Therefore, just because of what Paul just said, I'm not perfect, I've not apprehended, but this thing I'm doing, I'm forgetting the things of the past, I'm moving forward, I'm lifting my eyes to the Lord, I'm allowing God to do that. Again, Paul says, if you're mature, this is how we should respond. If you call yourself a mature Christian, again, I'm not perfect, I've not apprehended, but this is what I'm doing. I'm forgetting those things behind, and I'm moving towards the prize. I'm moving forward in God. 
And yet Paul says that, that if, if we claim to be mature, this is what we should be doing. And, and yet, even if we're not doing this, and I love this, God will reveal it. God will reveal it. God is a God who wants to speak and minister to our hearts. You know, oftentimes I tell people, hey, I got no answers. All I can do is point people to Jesus. He's the one with all the answers. I, I've got nothing other than what, but pointing people to Jesus Christ. And it's him. And yet I, I believe. And, and I love it when I sit and get to watch God do a miracle with a man or a woman when they finally will, will turn to the Lord and allow God to do that work in their hearts and their lives. When they forget those things in the past and they're moving forward, they want to grab onto Jesus Christ. They want to move that way. And it's like it's just this amazing thing. And, and yet God speaks to their hearts just like he wants to speak to our hearts tonight. He wants to speak and minister. He wants to show himself to us. Verse 16 going on. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Brethren, join me in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. You have us for a pattern. Again, Paul's confidence was that we could walk. Let us walk. It's a military term to keep rank, to keep in step, to, to be moving in the same motion in a sense. You know, when you join up for the army or whatever it is, you know, you're going to do, uh, the, the first thing they teach you is to, to march and to march and step and to keep rank and to keep file. Why? Because if, if not, we stumble and we fall over everyone and it's just utter chaos. But, 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 but Paul says, you know what, follow my example. I've shared this before, a really good one. We lived in Colorado. We used to go riding all the time on horses. And, and a really good trail horse will always put his foot in the exact place the horse in front of him put because he knows it's safe and secure. And that's basically what Paul's saying here. Hey, follow my example in a sense. Imitate me. You know, Pastor Jeff spoke on that the other day. An imitator is a person who copies the actions and behavior of another uh, to mimic or impersonate, to have or assume the appearance of. I remember years ago, I heard a study, and I, I probably shared this before, but that's okay. Uh, I heard a study on, on this of, of, of when Paul says, hey, follow me, imitate me. It, 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 the, the study that I heard was, what kind of a tater are you? Are you an imitator, one that is following or, or going along? Or are you a spectator? You're just sitting and looking and have no desire to get involved. Are you a commentator? Maybe you want to comment on things, but you're not in the game. Are you a hesitator? You want to do it, but you're staying back and you're not really willing to do it. Or are you an agitator? You know, you're not part of any solutions, but you're just part of more problems that are going on. Or are you a dictator? My way or the highway? I'm going to take my ball and go home if you don't do it my way. But, but Paul would say that we would be imitators, followers of him, because he has given us that pattern and that example, that example. And again that we should be walking in the Spirit. Again, you go to Galatians 5 where it talks about the fruit of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit. And Paul says, you know, if we are walking in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. And yet if we're walking in the flesh, we will not be fulfilling any of the desires of the Spirit. But Paul says that's why we need to walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Verse 18, uh, excuse me, yeah, verse 18 He says, for many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping 
that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. And I see Paul here talking about a confidence to see right and a confidence to see wrong. And here he's talking about the the wrong way for many walk. Again, did not even Jesus said that wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many that go that way. And yet Paul, um, what he says is the opposite of doing the right things, those who are doing the wrong things. They're the enemies of the cross. Rather than pointing people to the cross of Jesus Christ, they unfortunately were pointing people to themselves, whose end is, is destruction. And yet because they point people to the cross, they end up separating themselves from what the cross brings. What does the cross bring? As Pastor Rob shared earlier, forgiveness, life, peace with God. Amen. But, but, but again, those who are not going to the cross, they don't experience forgiveness. They don't experience life. They experience death. They don't have peace of God, but the wrath of God abides on them. Whose God is their belly. And again, sadly enough, it was all about what they got out of people rather than serving God's people. It's all about what I can get from rather than truly serving. They set their mind on earthly things. Again, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, all of these things. But, (laughs) verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly await for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship, our, our conversation, our community is in heaven and we eagerly wait for the Savior, the one, in a sense, who grants us access As Hebrews tells us, he says, we're strangers, we're pilgrims on earth, and yet we desire a better country, a heavenly country. And and if that's our desire, God is not ashamed to be called our God because he has prepared for us a city. Do you have a confidence in heaven? Again, Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. Where I am, there I want you to be. And that was Paul's confidence, because our confidence is in heaven. And closing up, wrapping up, he says, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Paul's confidence was that, you know what? God is able. And I love this. Who will transform our lowly body. That word transform or it's transfer. It's, it's like a transfer in a bus. You know, you take a bus and it only goes so far. Then you need a transfer to go further. In a sense, Jesus Christ is saying, hey, you know what? I am the transfer. In this life, we can only go so far. But then we're going to transfer from this life somewhere else. And if we allow Jesus Christ to be our transfer, we get to transfer in to the heavenly places. We get to transfer in to the kingdom of God. That is what Jesus Christ has done for each and every one of us. Again, he is able. God is able. God has the power. I don't have the power to transfer myself to heaven. You don't have the power to transfer yourself to heaven. Paul would say, my good works, your good works will not transfer you into heaven. That's what this whole chapter is talking about. It's, it's him. It's God who has done that work. He is. Jesus Christ is our transfer that enables us to get there. 
God is able. He is the one who can do that. Romans 16 says, He is able to establish you. Ephesians 3 says, He is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. Jude 24 tells us, He is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. And I, I know I've done this before, but I just love the picture of that because it's the picture of Jesus Christ coming to the Father and then grabbing us and bringing us and said, Dad, Dad, they made it, they made it. And him getting all excited that we are there in heaven with him. Again, this is what Jesus Christ has done for us. And he is the one who is able. He is the one that can do and perform all that needs to be done within our hearts and lives. Church, don't have confidence in what you've done or what you've accomplished or the things you know that you feel like okay this will get me into heaven these external things have confidence in what Jesus Christ has done have confidence in what Jesus Christ has accomplished because he is the one who is able he is the one who can transform the lowly body and transfer us into that kingdom of light amen Father, we thank you again for your word and the things written here within your word, Lord. Um, God, you are an amazing God. And Lord, even uh, as you continue to speak to my heart and show me, Lord, these people here at Calvary Chapel South Bay, you love them so much. You have a purpose and a plan for them. Your desire is for them to be with you. And I pray and ask, Lord, as we've looked at these scriptures today, that, Lord, we would not have any confidence in the flesh, in any of these external things, in the the hoops that we've jumped through, believing that by jumping through these, we are now right with you. But our confidence would be in Jesus Christ, in the work you have done, the work you've accomplished there upon the cross, when you extended forgiveness and you extended grace. Lord, help us to, to be reminded that we are part of your family. Help us to understand, God, that that we can forget those things which are behind and that we can move forward to you, looking to Jesus, the author and the finish of our faith, God. Lord, help us to understand that you are able to do these things. And for us, Lord, we're called to look to you. We're called to hold on to you. We're called to press towards you. And yet, Lord, while we're doing that, Your word says you're already holding us in your hand. Lord, that we would have experiential knowledge of your hand sustaining us, upholding us. Lord, for any that are here tonight, maybe that are struggling with that confidence, God, would you be the one to speak and would you be the one to minister to them? Lord, that we're not to trust We're not to trust in what we think we can do, but we're just to truly trust in you, that we're part of your family, that you love us, that you want to take care of us. Touch us, be with us, strengthen us, we ask and pray. And again, Lord, I do want to just lift up Pastor Greg and the Harvest Crusade. God, for the many, many hundreds of thousands of lives, Lord, that are there. And the stories that we'll hear and the testimonies of people who came and heard that good news that, God, you have a purpose and a plan for their lives, and and they truly surrendered to you, and they gave their lives to you, God. And, And because of that, Lord, they're part of the family of God. They have that eternal life that you give. As well as, Lord, we want to just stop again and pray for Pastor Steph. 
Would you touch him? Would you be with him? Be with him and Peg, Lord. Watch over them. Lord, their confidence, again, would not even be in the doctors. Their confidence is in you, that you're going to walk them through this time within their lives. And, Lord, they will come out on the backside trusting you greater, believing you more, seeing your hand and your grace and your mercy. Do this, we ask and pray. And we do thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. And all God's people agree by saying amen. Hey, church, if you, let's all stand. If you need prayer, the pastors are going to come forward, encourage you. Man, come up, get some prayer. Um, Let these men pray for you and encourage you in the things of God. But may God be with you. May he watch over you and keep you. And may you go forth in the confidence that God loves you and that he's able to do whatever it is that you need done within your lives. Amen. Let's worship.